0: Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. I'm Danny McCarthy. Today, I'm pleased to introduce John Reitz, CEO of Thread, and Andy Iverson, Clinical Outcome Solution Lead at Medtronic. John and Andy will be discussing decentralized clinical trials, where they don't work yet, and how that might change, the considerations for disease indication and trial type, what technology to use, and what an adoption journey could look like. With that, welcome John and Andy to PharmaTalk Radio. I'll let you guys take it away. Great. Thanks, Danny. Yeah. Thanks for having us today, Andy. I'm just excited about the conversation.
1: Yeah, me too. Thanks for having us, Danny. It's a pleasure to be here. So we're going to talk about when clinical trials don't work. I think we should first level set with listeners who might've been exposed to various definitions. So what is a decentralized clinical trial?
0: Yeah, it's a big word. I think of all the things we're going to talk about today around DCT, this could actually be the one thing everybody will disagree with anything we say, right? Because getting defining things is always a challenge. And even though we finally got to this word decentralized studies um, versus sort of the word bingo we used to always play around is it a virtual trials and a decentralized study. The reality is a definition of a DCT is moving validated assessments so that they don't only happen primarily in the clinic. Right, We're moving things so they can be decentralized from a location so that you're able to capture data, uh, complete study activities and do other things that are part of a protocol um, in the clinic but outside the clinic. And, and what I would tell you is it's the hybrid mix of that that we really think about at thread. You know, I, I know there's a fully decentralized trial model which you could you can make a play for, but that's a small percentage, right? A hybrid decentralized trial model is where the bulk of the innovation and shifts and studies have gone. And so I would tell you that it's simply put, it's just moving those validate assessments from only in the clinic to being able to happen outside the clinic and maintain the validation. And the process rigor they need to actually be an endpoint we can use in submissions.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with that definition as well. I think we're moving away from having a binary classification where a trial is entirely decentralized to to looking at individual activities. This is a decentralized activity, or this is a degree of decentralization. I think I think that's helpful for this definition in the conversation.
0: You know, too, I think we get hung up on the definition a little bit. You know, we uh, probably like you, Andy, internally. We you know people will call and have this conversation. They'll say, well. You know, I, I can't do a decentralized study because I want my patients to see sites. And, and I look perplexed because I say, well, who told you a DCT doesn't involve sites? And I think, you know, there's a little bit of misconception still happening. And, and hopefully topics like today help to educate a little bit and sort of ground us that there are levels of decentralization, right? And, and, and the how you do it and how, how many virtual visits you have versus home health visits versus in clinic is totally up for debate because you're applying it fit for purpose to each and every protocol, right? So some protocols, maybe two virtual visits is great. And then some maybe 10 out of 12 is, is what you can do. And that's okay. I think it's about using decentralized trial as a tool, not the full study model. And I think when you think about it like that, it helps you to be more flexible and using it for its advantages, but not kind of leaning into, you know, trying to force fit it into stuff, uh, which is, you know, kind of the next point we were chatting about was when these DCTs don't work, and I think about that topic, I think we all are really quick to point out, here's all the great things DCT can do, but, but obviously there's areas where it it, it doesn't work or it maybe is not the good fit. Do you have any kind of high level areas you think about when you think about fitting and where it maybe more it's being forced in areas it, it shouldn't be?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great place to start. I think, I think the first place where, where it often doesn't fit is if you, if you need to go fully decentralized, especially at a company like Medtronic, where we're dealing with uh, implants and complex procedures, you certainly need that site. So if you don't have the site element to it, a decentralized trial might work. Um, I think the other big area where where it gets tricky is if you try to go maybe too big for your trial in terms of um, regions, sites, and patients. So if you're dealing with um, compliance and data privacy laws and other re- regulations that might vary from country to country, you might be picking elements of your decentralized clinical trial that aren't going to be compatible across all those regions and sites. So you really need to be um, mindful of that, and um, maybe start slow. Try things out in different areas, and make sure you have all of the buy-in that you might need to do that.
0: You know, when you think about some of the study designs, like you mentioned, yeah, you know, I'll take an easy example, like electronic consent, right? Good example, right? Something that you can see—it's it happens a lot in decentralized studies as a feature. You know, it's one of many things you do, but as a feature, to help drive transparency and education in support of a person enrolling in a clinical trial. But when you take that out and you're in 50 countries, e-consent's not approvable. And in places like Asia, where it's not a signature to stamp, the model's very different. And so when you think about that, it's not that necessarily a DCT doesn't work, but a consistent standard or you know, sort of in a you know uh, in a box model doesn't work consistently around the globe. And so DCTs cannot work if you think about saying this is the one way I'm going to do them. I'm going to force fit this model across the regions, which is exactly what you're mentioning. And I, and I wholeheartedly agree. That's an area where it doesn't work. I'd also kind of throw out an idea of, you know, um, even though, you know, when you think about a hybrid DCT, uh, the amount of therapeutic areas and, you know, cause we're working in every one of them now. And you think about, you know, device and drug and all these other places you can put it in there. There are a lot of options there, but I'd say DCTs don't really work when you think about, um, sort of like uh, phase 1A and some 1B studies, like especially in some oncology therapeutic areas, it's not actually a great fit because the, if you look at the, how the protocol is structured and how patients are coming in, say for an infusion, you're actually might be overburdening them by trying to decentralize things in study. So there are some studies that are built around particular visits. And the reason they're built around particular visits is actually to make it easier on a participant to participate. So what I would say is when we try to force fit, you know, some of those 1B even some late phase and rural evidence studies into a decentralized trial model where maybe it's not the right fit because it's too aligned to standard of care, we might just kind of overburden people by trying to do something really innovative that actually isn't really needed. So I think there's some, you know, particular study designs we think about that I think just have some natural challenges.
1: Yeah, I think force fit is a good way to describe it because I think another area where they really don't work is if you know, it's really being opportunistic from a sponsor perspective. So you have this tool, um, patients can seemingly enter anything at any, any frequency, and you just need to make sure that whatever you're doing with this technology is perceived as a benefit by the patient. So it's reducing the study burden, or they're, they're definitely getting something out of it. I think you can, um, you know, default to saying, we're going to collect this data every day, or every week, or every month, or we can integrate all of these sensors, but you really need to make sure um, that it all makes sense for the patient and, and it fits in with what they should be doing for activities on their care journey.
0: You know, it's interesting too. We did this um, patient insight work recently, and it meaning we'd we have our, you know, the platforms being used, you're doing a decentralized trial approach. Somebody is simulating the platform. It happened to be a patient in this case. And you show them how a telehealth visit works, how they do ECOA, kind of all things you described. And essentially the response you get after was, you said, Well, how did that feel? And they go, Wasn't this how they all work? was the response you got from the patient. And so what I would tell you too is when DCTs don't work is actually a little bit when we don't explain that they're actually different than what we traditionally do in trials. Me as a consumer, but also just people, especially in the world we live in now, kind of in this, you know, coming out of whatever this pandemic model looks like right now, you know, everybody's got a mix, everybody's living a hybrid digital and and physical world. And so I think from our perspective, DCTs actually don't work and are are not as impactful when we don't actually educate patients and participants around, hey, this is what you're going to do. This is how it's going to work. This is how it's different than a traditional study. Because I I do think that sometimes we, we, we as sort of organizations that are doing the studies know the innovation. We're excited about it. We're going to do it. But when we take it out there in the real world, you know, if we don't train and appropriately support the sites and the patients, you're right. They don't understand why it's happening. They might have a little bit of, of their expectations are actually higher because they already thought it was, it was the norm. And I think those are some things where DCTs don't work. If we don't think about the education, we don't stop about, you know, thinking about how do we talk to and and train appropriately and support appropriately too. So yeah, that'd be the other one I'd throw in there. You know, just knowing a lot of your work around evidence and assessments and endpoints and, and generation like that, do you have any thoughts around, I don't know, sort of complications around that and kind of what's holding back the use of, kind of all of these types of endpoints in DCT?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a really good question because I think there's a lot of challenges. One, you know, have these endpoints been validated? So you have a you know, gold standard of doing it site-based, maybe you're able to do some e-pros virtually, but then if you want to get into new endpoints, um, oftentimes you need to have a comparator to validate them. So you're going to be collecting them traditionally, you know, do you want to go the extra mile to also do it decentralized? I think a lot of those endpoints have yet to be proven out. I think, especially because, um, DCTs are very much, you know, on the rise and not at peak adoption. Um, I think another area that is really challenging to figure out in the operations is just authentication of data. Um, you know, did, did this really come from the patient? Did they really enter it? Did they really do it appropriately? Um, there might be some complex um, steps required for you to get a specific measurement from a sensor under the supervision of a trained professional. That, that's one thing. But I think if you're looking at just at the patient's home, that's another. So uh, there's some ways to counteract that. You can have home health visits. You can have um, telehealth for some things, but you still do have that, that challenge where some measurements and readings are just going to be different Um, in a site than at home.
0: The other piece, uh, this still having this discussion in the industry around BYOD versus provisioning devices, right? Because, you know, each has its pros and cons, right? Device provisioning means you have a lot of control, um, but you also, the con is increased costs and you have to give people new devices and they have to carry something else. But on the other hand, you know, BYOD is great, but you have to cover a lot of BYOD instances. You got to cover a lot of operating systems across, you know, different um, iOS and Android features. And so, You know, when you look at kind of where DCTs don't work, you know, I think they don't work when you don't have a really well thought through strategy around provisioning versus BYOD. And I think part of it is science, right? Part of it is if you're taking like a, if you're using image capture in the app and you need to make sure your image quality is at a certain level because that's a secondary or primary endpoint, you should probably provision a device, right? Because you're just going to take that risk off the table. But on the other hand, you know, if we don't think about strategically the use of that particular device or web or whatever that would be in a study, we can actually make the DCT study not work because we've introduced something that's completely new, right? Like I'll give you an example, you know, something we, you, you see is even when you provision devices and you provision, say, an iOS device to an Android user. They go, hey, thanks, but I actually like Android better. And so we've had these kind of multi-kits where you're like, here's an Android version, here's an iOS version, because people are just so used to using them that you give them you know, something like an Android user, an iOS phone, and it feels like you know, it's an alien. So I do think that DCTs don't work uh, when we don't think through those considerations, obviously, because like you said, the devices, the sensors, all those components become so much of the source of data capture. And so it's, it's tricky. It's a little art, not science in those discussions, but I do think that they don't work when we don't make decisions around, you know, to who who has the device and what kind of device are people going to use.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that the two big issues around devices are really device familiarity, the you know, iOS Android example, or I'm being provisioned a blood pressure cuff. I already have a different one at home. Ideally you'd be able to integrate all devices that a patient chooses and they'd all have valid you know, scientifically proven data, Um, but that's just not the case. And sometimes you're going to need to rely on these tried and true standards. But then the other issue you get into is, you know, device fatigue. So a patient might have two devices, um, a wearable. So from the patient perspective, they're juggling all these different apps and devices that you want to avoid. And then also from the site perspective, if everybody has a decentralized trial going, um, there's going to be various uh, applications, patient facing apps, wearables, et cetera, that all need to be handled by the site and now they're kind of getting into this it support model that maybe didn't exist before uh so i think that's another area that you know we're going to need to figure out and might become more of a a challenge as more and more trials are decentralized
0: yeah that's a good point i I was i think it's spot on you know dcts don't work when the sites have to become the geek squad right like that's just it's a burden where you know uh, that you don't want to put on sites. Because it's not, you know, they're doing their job, and they've got a lot of work to do already. And I would say that, you know, being able to have tech support and, and all those components is really helpful and important. Uh, not that some sites, not that sites aren't there to help, but they need to be a directional arrow, not feel like they have to answer everything and figure everything out. And I do think that that is, you know, like when we look at tech support and things like that, it, it's critical. It's important uh, because they don't work if people get frustrated. And I think, you know, as simple as you can make it, it's always the simple things. Uh, I was telling somebody the other day, they said, well, what are the biggest technology questions you get to your help desk? And I said, well, actually, you'd be shocked. Like the kind of tech questions you get are like, my phone doesn't turn on. And we go, well, that's because you, the, the, you're the, you using an iOS and it's the little button on top. Or, you know, I'm not sure if I charge my device or not. You know, it's really, it's not these complicated things, you know, or I dropped my phone in the swimming pool. How do I get to work again? Like, this is real life. Like you know, Sandy, this is what actually happens in clinical trials, and I think I think we think that there are these severely complex tech issues, but there are still a number of users, especially people in clinical trials, that do not have a high technology aperture, right? And so, so they do need help, and they maybe need more handholding. Not everybody, but a percentage. And and you're right, we have to really account for that. And if we don't, we really um, impact the ability for the DCT model to work well. So if we kind of slide out of that, which uh, that much time on DCTs not working, I think is is good, right? I, I think this is a, it's a healthy conversation to know that decentralized trials approach is, you know, we believe it. That's why we're here talking about it. But we have to take measured steps and use it in the right ways, the right therapeutic areas, the right, you know, operation uh, areas. But, you know, if you think about kind of moving on when, when you do figure out how to think about adopting and scaling DCTs. Yeah, how do, how what kind of advice would you give to everybody else listening to say, here's how they should start?
1: Yeah, I think there's really two big focus areas for that. I think one is the stakeholder engagement aspect, and the other would be the just your technology evaluation and adoption framework. So it's kind of starting the conversation on the stakeholder side. You know, I think there's the there's the internal and the external stakeholder groups. Executive sponsorship and leadership certainly helps. We had that at Medtronic as we were trying to kind of bring on some of these new technologies and, and top down is certainly easier than bottom up. So it helps you with the, the upfront investment. You know, you're not necessarily going to be saving money instantly when you go decentralized and also just some of the bumpy road ahead with um, various stakeholders in the process you need to go through. Um, you need to overcome some of the initial skepticism. Um, a lot of things that we just actually talked about uh, might lead some people to believe you know that will never work or nobody actually wants that as part of the trial. Um, so you need to figure out um, how can you thoughtfully design um, you know, the actions you're going to take with, with decentralized clinical trials so you can uh, prove out different lessons over time to kind of have a larger system. Uh, you also need to get business unit level clinical leadership. So find those innovative leaders who are going to include decentralized clinical trials as part of their overall evidence strategy. So the early adopters at the organization, they're going to have more steps to go through than some of the late adopters. They need to be in this for the long haul, willing to invest a little bit more um, and make sure they have a use case that is more suitable for decentralization than maybe some of the late adopters might be. You also need to engage with the vendor management group in your organization. So a lot of these virtual clinical vendors are are much different than traditional vendors. Um, They're more like IT, but they still need to be managed according to the same quality framework. Uh, So making sure that we're set up to assess and select and oversee these clinical technology vendors is key. And then of course, you know, IT and data management, there's all these new integrations to consider, understand our data requirements, different target systems, all the metadata considerations to, to make sure we're working with, you know, the right data and decentralized and the right vendors that it'll fit in with our existing technology and operational framework. Obviously, quality needs to be engaged. We have various SOPs. Uh, do these technology fit in, what has to change, and then privacy and security, uh, making sure those assessments take place and we have fully validated and qualified systems that, that we can be responsible for and, and will work.
0: How do you guys think about what kind of initial studies to select? Because you, you mentioned that up front, but I do think that that's a question we get all the time, right? Which is kind of what's like what's the best fit criteria? Like if I want to do my first one to three What's a good example? Where's a good place to start? What advice would you give to, to companies who are just saying, I'm trying to figure out, like, I've got an array of studies. How do I figure out which is the best one to start with?
1: It's first identifying areas of significant patient burden. So what are activities where a patient might just obviously think, why can't I do this at home? Um, if you're going in to fill out various pain scores um, and questionnaires, you know, that's something that in the patient care world has largely shifted to be at home. Um, you're doing this as part of your your pre-check-in process before a visit. Um, so I think things like that, ePRO is, you know, the big one to do, and, and that's why it's had the most adoption. I think other ones, once you get more creative, is if, if a patient is coming in for maybe a, just a simple blood draw, can you think about um, so, some sort of mobile health, bring things to the patient rather than adding additional burdens. Kind of focusing with those things where you're going to get, you know, validated data. You're not really concerned that it won't count for your endpoint. Um, but still does save patients a trip to the clinic. If you're if you're not replacing you know, clinic visits, it's not going to add as much value to the patient right away.
0: One other thing to consider is a lot of our customers, especially the ones that are kind of at an adoption or scale model now. And what we just find that as somebody's doing, you know, more than five DCTs. So they're kind of still in that journey, but moving forward, yeah. Uh, we saw a lot of customers kind of start in either a phase two or a 3B right? They didn't put like no, like you know, very few of our customers went straight to phase three RCP, right? They, they kind of went to these zones where there were still risks, where it was still hard to do, still important, um, but, but there was less risk because you could start in kind of phase two, phase 3B. And, and I do think that for companies that are thinking about how do I start, um, I think all those points you made are excellent. And I think trying to figure out, you know, therapeutic area around, not just around do I think it's a good therapeutic area, but does it decrease patient burden is a big deal. Um, I would also say that when we look at the virtual visit model, which is what you brought up, the ability to reduce visits, you know, if you can reduce more than two visits, you're making a substantial change in the schedule events, right? And I think that you're 100% right. That brings a lot to bear. You know, when you think about kind of this phasing approach, right, you think about how do you actually drive adoption scale? Do you kind of have in your head or do you have thought process on sort of what a phase one looks like versus a phase two? you know sort of. these are things you got you nailed a bunch of things that you got to get right to really start what are the things you think about that kind of get you after you've started to a phase 2
1: yeah and how we approach this is we really have a you know technology evaluation and the, the adoption framework um, so once you have you know your strategy developed you've, you've, you've identified need and and you're working on implementing some of these technology we really like to start with a proof of concept in our phase, phase one even before doing a pilot study um, and what's nice about that is you can you know, test all of the solution capabilities in a compressed timeframe um, and address some of these unknowns and risks outside the context of a clinical study. And then you're getting non-production data. So you can get bigger user feedback in, in the organization. So it's not just one study team. Everybody can kind of um, be involved. Um, obviously, the limit, there's some limitations with this that you need to get to um, with a pilot. You're not getting some of the workflow and operation considerations, but then when you do get to that, you know, phase two pilot setup, there's, there's quite a few ways you can, you can look at it. I think for some use cases, if you're just doing one activity decentralized, so maybe you're um, doing some ePros or uh, some simple, some simple things to kind of reduce that SOE, you can actually look at doing a full implementation in a clinical study, um, production ca- capacity, all sites, all patients, um, but oftentimes you want to just do, uh, you know, experimental or limited implementation. Uh, So you're doing it just for a subset of sites, a subset of patients, maybe just one region, if it's a global study, um, to really test the technology and get good feedback while not interrupting um, any of your endpoints or putting your study at risk. You also might be looking at it, you know, it's just a validation study, uh, comparing the accuracy of the measurement that you're you're doing decentralized with the gold standard or an equivalency study. So if you want to try to identify a novel novel endpoint, um, just determine the equivalence um, from decentralized to traditional. Uh, you could also even just um, connect with some of your, your better partner sites and, and do clinical trial feasibility. Um, so can you deploy this technology for a subset of patients outside the context of a trial and just, and just get kind of real world feedback um, or an in-clinic technology assessment? So rather than even sending the patient home with it, uh, you can work with a site to, to do it within the clinic visit, and get feedback there. So there's a lot of ways to kind of help you walk and crawl before going uh, full decentralized deploying all these different features as part of a you know, large global study.
0: Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, what do you think about the, I, I guess the piece I would say the educational piece of all this, I think is important. The one thing that's like all those are great strategies and what we still find as a company, even after five years of doing this, right, we get into a company, you go to train a CRA or a group of CRAs data managers and and it's really interesting when you go do the trainings and then you hear their feedback and you sort of go, well, that's not actually what we're doing on the study. That's not actually how virtual visit work or sensor data capture, or ECOA. And you start to find out that as you get in level of depth into R&D, you start to figure out where there's there, the depth of education on a DCT model um, is not always present. And so, you know, how do you, it, and again, the, you know, the classic question or classic response is, oh, that sounds great, but you can't do that in Germany. And we have to go, well, who told you that? Here's the regs and, you know, here's the matrix map that we have and you can do all these things. But how are you thinking about kind of heading that off? right, being able to kind of help educate people across the organization, because especially in something like Metronic, it's hard to do. It's a lot of people, right, to educate. And you kind of have to, I don't know, you have to compartmentalize and prioritize the education. But is there anything you've done in your organization that drives kind of education just in general, even if they haven't got to a study yet, or just to kind of, you know, if someone comes to you and goes, I want to know more about DCT, you give them X. Like, I'm just sort of curious if there's anything, any tactics or actions you found helpful there.
1: Yeah. And one thing we have really nice at Medtronic is it's kind of a culture of collaboration where we have uh, monthly clinical ground rounds. We have a a clinical research and medical affairs governing trust. So there's, there's avenues um, like that, where you can, where we're, you know, knowledge dissemination naturally takes place. Um, Early adopters can share what they did, what worked capabilities and limitations. Uh, So I think that's important. Um, And then I think just education in terms of making sure a study uh, is on track and operates well, I think it's just, focusing on early intervention as far as getting this as part of the evidence roadmap especially when you're dealing with sites um, that might be using different technologies e- even now you know with the pandemic they have their own virtual care platforms and things like that so engaging early uh, with patients and sites and getting feedback on how this might fit in i think having having that feedback and, and information to provide with your with your study teams is it really going to be helpful to kind of show that this is this will work in this way and these are the benefits that our key stakeholders are going to see so it's really about being proactive and i think for us investing at an enterprise level to make sure we have some of that information to support our study teams
0: yeah that's great yeah no i i think mean, it's awesome i i know we've seen some success uh, in sort of a larger customers where we, as they've generated their case studies, right? They get their first studies, they actually have publications, they kind of do their own reports and they can feed them back in the company, right? To say, hey, everybody, just so you know, we did this and here's where you can read about it. Um, because, you know, I, it's interesting to me, we had, I, was, I don't know, like six months ago or so, um, presenting to a customer about doing a DCT, uh, spent two hours, got to the end of the meeting, a uh, person sort of took me to the side on Zoom, and did like a follow-up call and said, hey, I love everything here. I just don't know if my company is ready to do this yet. And I said, well, that's interesting because the case study I just showed you in the presentation was your company. Uh, and I think, you know, the information exchange that we have, especially in larger companies, and I grew up in a larger company too, it's hard, right? It's hard to keep everybody informed. And, and you have to keep um, informing and educating, informing and educating to, you know as much as you can. So there's a lot, obviously, to do there. Um, Andy, any um, you know, as we look at this agenda and sort of what we're trying to accomplish today, I think you know what I would say is I think we're trying to take a really measured approach and not take the easy route on DCTs and just say here's everything we love about them because obviously we're believers in it, we're doing them, we we believe it, but trying to take a measured approach to here's how you need to think about where you shouldn't use it or where it doesn't work, but also if you're going to get into an adoption journey, these are some steps you need to take and and taking measured steps is an important way to scale appropriately, right? To not sort of rush into things, but to get it right. As you think about kind of the holistic conversation we've had today, any kind of parting words, anything that that you would say to, to, our, to the listeners to kind of wrap up how they should be thinking about moving DCT in, in their company?
1: Yeah, I think the last topic is really the most important place to start, just education and getting yourself up to speed, understanding how this can fit in. Then also when you're when you're looking at your you know, your clinical evidence strategy. It's not just about replacing existing evidence or data collection methods. It's also about the opportunities of new data collection, um, longitudinal data. Um, You can think about symptoms and uh, predicting various endpoints. So there's a lot of great opportunities that come with this that might change the ROI if you look beyond just um, replacing existing activities.
0: Yeah, well said. Yeah, I would definitely say, I think the key here is start. Doesn't have to be perfect. Doesn't have to be complex. The key is start. DCT is here and there are, you're not the first to do it, but at the same time, starting is more important than continue to analyze when you should start. And uh, it's good. So Andy, thanks for, for today. Thanks for the conversation.
1: Yeah. Thanks, John. It was a great conversation. Thanks, Danny.
0: Thank you both so much for that conversation and, and the guidance and the consideration For more information on our PharmaTalk radio podcasts, you can visit theconferenceforum.org. I would again want to thank John and Andy for taking the time to chat through DCTs and really a great path forward. So thank you so much for taking the time.